Well, good morning. I want to invite you to uh, get your Bibles and let's look to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. The Gospel of John, chapter 4. Just uh, We just came back uh, this week from our annual uh, uh, convention meeting uh, down in uh, Fairlee Baptist Church in Lewisburg, West Virginia. Had a great time together uh, and uh, uh, some good things, wonderful things going on in our state. Well, we are continuing this morning in our study, uh, Next Steps in Spiritual Formation, and we, we come this morning to the, to the topic of evangelism. Now, um, evangelism is a, is a, is a subject that you may not associate with spiritual growth, with spiritual formation. But let me assure you that it, that it absolutely is. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That is Mark chapter 16, verse 15. And I'm not sure if uh, what I have on the screen here is the same as what you guys are seeing or not on this screen. Can you, can you get that up or is that a possibility? All right. Okay. Um, and of course that reminds us that the purpose of Christ's church is the same as that of Christ himself, which is to seek and to save that which is, is lost. Now, when, when Jesus was calling his disciples, he said to them, uh, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? What, what is the purpose to be fishers of men? So, so we say our purpose as a church is to glorify God by fulfilling the great commission in the passion of the great commandment. The primary reason we exist is to glorify God. And how do we accomplish that? By being fishers of men, by making disciples that in turn make disciples. And, and the motive for doing that is our love for God and our love for other people. William Booth, who is the um, founder of what we know today as the Salvation Army, says this, put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and and masters not to come there. Then look to Christ in the face. Or then look Christ in the face, whose mercy you have professed to obey, and tell him whether you will join heart and soul and body and circumstance in the march to to publish his mercy to the world. Our purpose as a church, if you want to put it very simply, is to do evangelism. And yet, now listen to me, the greatest challenge we face as a church and as individual Christians is doing 
evangelism. We will do just about anything else but evangelism. It is a huge challenge to us. Now, part of the reason for that is because we all know that we are surrounded by people who have no interest in God or His Word. We live in a world where people don't even want to know God. And, it, and, that, and that indifference can be a significant challenge to our evangelistic efforts. So how do we effectively bring the gospel to the world that doesn't want to hear it? Well, the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John provides us with a, with a compelling uh, example of effective personal evangelism from the life of Christ. And Jesus' conversation with this woman that we know as the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, uh, gives, us a, 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 gives us some principles for approaching people who don't have an inherent interest in, in, in the gospel. There, I think we can find some six principles here that will help us. And the first principle is this, is that we, we need to take initiative. Uh, you, if you look at verse 3 of John chapter 4, it says, He left Judea and went away into Galilee. Jesus is going from the area of, of Jerusalem and he's going north to where the Sea of Galilee is. And it says in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it's difficult with you looking at your uh, English translation of this to see the intensity of what is actually said here. Because uh, we can see it a little bit better in the King James Version, which says, he must needs go through Samaria. In other words, it was necessary for him to go there. It's the same word that is used in chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, you must be born again. It's absolutely necessary. You must be born again. And Jesus says, I must go to Samaria. Why? Because this is a divine appointment. Jesus is going. And, you know, it's not because uh, that it was the only route, because it wasn't. I mean, you could go up to the you could go up the coast, or you could go up the valley of uh, the Jordan River. Uh, but and and most Jews did. But there was also a, a route right down the middle through Samaria, and Jesus says, "I've got to go there because I've got a divine appointment with this woman." And when he arrives in Sychar. After traveling about 20 miles by foot that morning, he's wearied from his journey. And he sits down by a well, the, the well of Jacob, and, and his, he sends the disciples into town to get some food. And he's left there alone. And verse 7 says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. See, Jesus took the initiative, and he didn't wait for the woman to ask him how she might receive eternal life. 
In fact, she didn't even understand her, her own spiritual need. She didn't, she didn't say, I don't have a, a spiritual need. And, and, and Jesus takes the initiative because if he didn't, you understand, this conversation would never have happened. If he was sitting there waiting for her, it would never have happened. See, it was a shock to her that Jesus even spoke to her. Because in that culture, men didn't have any dealings with women, especially women that they didn't know, and especially a Samaritan woman. And it was, uh, it was just, it wasn't just gender difference. There's, that was a difference between them, but there was a, an ethnic difference. And the ethnic animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans went back for hundreds of years. And if you, you remember what, what happened, that after the Assyrian uh, invasion, they, they took the most of the Jewish people out of that country and then they brought in other pagan nations to populate that area and the people the few people that were left in that area began to intermingle with the Jewish population and they not only intermingled in that way but they adopted their their culture in part and their religions in part so they had a corrupted religion and and the Jewish people looked upon them as 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 in a very negative way because they, they thought of them as, as half-breeds and as, as uh, pagan in their lifestyle. So, as, as John explains in, in chapter 6, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And so Christ's request for a drink here is a shock to this woman. It, it shattered those ethnic barriers. And in verse 6 it says, it was about the sixth hour. That, mean, and that means that it was about noon. This was an unusual time for this woman to come and draw water. Normally the women would come in groups at dawn when it was cooler, or excuse me, at dusk, and, and they would draw their water. And here's this woman all alone at noon in the heat of the day coming to the well to draw water. And so why is this woman alone? Well, as we discover later in the text, that this woman had many multiple failed marriages. In essence, she was pretty much an outcast in her own society because of her moral character. She was rejected. And just as Jesus broke the, the, the societal barriers and the, and the racial barriers, he didn't allow this woman's sinful lifestyle to prevent him from, from talking to her. You know, if we're honest, sometimes it can be very difficult, can it, to try to talk to people who, are, who live a, a sinful lifestyle. And all of us probably have some things that especially just, you know, irritate us and put, a, put us off. There's some things that we just really don't like. We can handle, sometimes we can handle this kind of sin, but we can't handle that kind of sin. And, 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 and it's especially difficult when people are very outward about it and they just kind of like flaunt it and they're very bold in it. It can be very difficult to have a, this attitude toward those sinful people that they are people who need the Lord. But you see, they're not the enemy. They are the mission field. They are the people for whom the Lord came into the world to save. 
They are you and me before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And and we can't be like Jonah who wanted to withhold the the message of 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 salvation from people because of their sinfulness. We can't keep our distance. It's our responsibility to take the initiative to go to them. For their sakes, for the gospel's sake. Instead, we need to be like Christ who overcame any lack of, you know, natural connection to this woman. And he aggressively invaded her life, her day, to impact her life with the truth of salvation. You know, this is something that God has really been working on me in the last uh, month really heavily. Uh, doing evangelism requires us to go where lost people are. I find that my, in my, my own life, that I'm often so isolated from lost people. So many of the things that I do, I'm doing around believers, people with the church. You know, I, 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 it's easy to get isolated in that world. And, 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 and God calls us to get out there where the world is. And we have to take the initiative to begin gospel conversations with people. We can't sit back and just wait for that opportunity to occur because it almost never does if we're waiting for somebody else to initiate it. And and we need to intentionally look for ways to bring this, you know, eternal issues into the conversation. See, in essence, really what Jesus is telling us is our life is our evangelistic opportunity. Your life is your evangelistic opportunity. Living your life. And the salvation of, of, of people is going to be dependent upon us going Taking the initiative, starting gospel conversations. The Samaritan woman had no interest in Christ. She didn't know who he was. She didn't know what he taught. She was spiritually ignorant. She was indifferent. Her spiritual need was the farthest thing from her mind. And Jesus intervened, took the initiative, spoke a simple sentence with her to her and then just totally turned the tables on her from now talking about his need for water to talking about her need for water, spiritual water. And you see, this brings us to our, to our second principle here. In that conversation, that gospel conversation, which we take the initiative, we need to transition to spiritual needs. It's, it's very simple. We take the initiative and then we transition to spiritual needs. Jesus didn't just get the conversation going. He immediately steered it to what was going on <clears throat> in her life spiritually. Look at verse 9. He says, Therefore, 
the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, you understand that Jesus' request of this woman for a drink of water throws her off guard. But it also becomes a the point of contact between them talking. And everyone, you know, I think can relate to the to the you know the, the reality of your physical need for water. Water is is invaluable. We have to have it. And Jesus simply uses that basic need as a starting point for conversation. I mean, what, what do, what's the most basic starting point for a conversation between us today? Might be weather, right? It might be football. There are all kinds of common starting points. Nobody thinks anything about starting a conversation about a particular thing. The traffic, just about anything. But you know, here's the thing. Once we start a conversation, we should be looking then for an opportunity to transition that conversation to a spiritual subject, eternal matters. And, and if we're, and, and I believe we're, we're pretty good. We could actually do that pretty easily. And Jesus here uses this analogy of water. Be, and, it, and it's a beautiful analogy because it's it's not only makes the for the point of their contact it has a beautiful spiritual analogy in the old testament as well water bringing life spiritual life water is precious it's vital and in the new testament world man it was hard to come by you know digging these wells was a big deal finding a place where there was access to water Oh, it was huge. It was enormous. Every single day, you had to go carry that water a distance for wherever you were. That was a big deal. And But Jesus wasn't offering to quench this woman's physical thirst. He had something else in mind. He's talking about her spiritual need. And that's really the essence of evangelism. We locate a common point of reference or of interest, and then we begin a conversation anticipating how we can direct that conversation to spiritual needs. Regardless of the topic, regardless of the place, or the most casual conversation can be turned to the spiritual. And listen, it's our job. It's our job. To look for those opportunities. Isn't it? Because what Jesus said. You're going to be fishers of men. That's what you do when you fish. Isn't it? You're looking. I mean you can't, you can't fish here. You got to go to water. You got to go to where the fish are. Don't you? And you got to put in something. That the fish are going to be interested in. You got to have some point of contact. With those fish right. Which is usually food. 
we can't be fishers of men if we don't go to where people are. If we don't make some kind of connection with them, it'll never happen. And in this case, Jesus takes the initiative and he almost immediately turns the conversation to spiritual things. And here, I believe one of our problems sometimes is that we wait too long to get to the spiritual. That we're so concerned and we're so fearful sometimes about doing that, that we go so long, and the longer we go, the more difficult it becomes to get the conversation to something spiritual. Jump right in there. And you know one of the things that happens if when you do that, you find out almost immediately where people are and what their degree of interest is. In that, here's that third, here's our third principle. Offer God's mercy. Uh, and let me, let me make some comments here that I think are very important for us to hear. Too many modern evangelistic methods offer the wrong thing. They offer purpose or contentment or a sense of completeness in your life or peace or happiness or fulfillment. And those are often byproducts of saving faith. But none of those is the primary focus of the gospel. Christ didn't die for your emotional stability. He didn't die so that you could be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Jesus died for your sin. He died in order to remove the barrier between you and God so that you could spend eternity with God. And he he became a substitute to pay your debt, and and that is you see that's what uh, the the offer that Jesus made to this woman at the well. He offers God's mercy for her sin, friend. That's what we're offering people. We're offering people God's mercy and grace for their sin. Her response indicates that she didn't really get that. Verse 11, she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself uh, and his sons and his cattle. See, she's questioning the idea that Jesus can get anything out of that well without a, without a, a bucket. Or that anything that he could pull up out of there would ever be, would be any better than their ancestor Jacob had given to them for all these years. But you see, Jesus is not dissuaded by her, her mocking. In verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But everyone who drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. See, he uses this powerful analogy 
of water to connect with this woman. And he's saying, listen, I want to give you something that is going to satisfy you beyond the temporary. I want to give you something that will, that is far greater than, than your immediate need for water. I want to give you something that will satisfy your very soul for all eternity. He's talking about the endless supply of riches that God gives at salvation. And she doesn't even understand that. She doesn't even have a clue about that. And, and, and this offer of unearned grace, unbelievable mercy, is what is unique to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, because every other religion prescribes some method for earning or deserving God's goodness and blessing. Some, some prescription for, 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 to follow that will give you the results that you want. But God simply says, I give it as a gift, unearned, undeserved. I offer to you my mercy and my forgiveness. Good behavior, ceremonies, rituals, all of those things, they have no place in your receiving my mercy. Rather, every sinner must be born again, must be born of the Spirit. And, and instead, Jesus says we must ask for the mercy that he supplies. Romans 13, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's saying all you got to do is ask for it. He's offering God's mercy, and he's saying to you, if you knew to ask, you would have. I'm telling you, you can ask. But again, notice this is very interesting, the, the, the sequence here. I don't know that it always goes this sequence, but these elements here are vital. And the next principle here is confront sin. I already addressed that a little bit because that is so important. But confronting sin is, is, is a big deal. One of the main problems with so many of these evangelistic presentations is that they risk leading people to a false confession, a false conversion. Uh, think about what is being offered in our world today. People are being offered happiness. They're being offered a full and meaningful life. They're being offered prosperity. They're being offered purpose. They're being offered all of these kinds of things and saying, we're holding this out here to you, but it's all about my life right now. It's all focused on the temporary life of people right now. And, and just think about it. when when you when you offer only positive things from God, all these good things, all these blessings that you can name from God. Well, you got all kinds of people signing up. Just look at Lakewood Church. Just look at so many of these churches. You've got all these people signing up for this, but there is a major difference between wanting and desiring the good things that God can give you and turning from your sin and submitting to Him and allowing Him to forgive you. There's a huge difference. 
And the key to get rid of all of that fog is to confront sin. Until a person understands the weight of their sin and that their real problem is their sin, they are not ready to repent and turn to Christ in faith. And this was the case with the Samaritan woman. You see in, in here in, in verse 15, it sounds like she's ready to get this good water that he's offering. Well, yes, sir, give me this good water. See, that's, that's where, that's where the world is. Give me this good water. Yeah, I want that. I want that full and meaningful life. Yeah, I want that purpose. Yeah, I want to be rich and, and powerful and wealthy and healthy. But that's not the end of the story. And Jesus turns around. He says, now, with just one command, he says, now, go get your husband and come here. And verse 17, the woman answered and said to him, I I have no husband. And Jesus answered and said, "You, you have answered correctly. I have no husband for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Now, understand that the Samaritans practiced a corrupted version of Judaism, but they still kept the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So they had Moses' law. This woman knew that adultery was against the law. And she was aware that she was a sinner. I mean, she was an outcast in her own people because of her immoral lifestyle. But it's not until now she's, until she sees her sin in relation to the mercy of God that she begins to understand the full weight of it. And, and it's here that the, the direction of the conversation radically shifts. Now there's no more talk about mercy. No more talk about satisfaction or, or blessing. I mean, initially she's, she's indifferent, she's ignorant, and suddenly her immorality is laid bare. And all of a sudden she's starting to feel the weight of that. She's starting to feel the burden of that, that conviction. This is the thing that she has worked so hard to cover up. That's why she's there at the, at the well at noon all by herself. This is the thing that she does not want to talk about. In our day, she would have probably had a, 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 a sit-in or a group of people protesting somewhere for multiple marriage, a multiple marriage world. And she's feeling this conviction. You know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to present the glories of the gospel to sinners. It's wonderful to talk about all the good things that happen as a result of trusting Christ. But you can't stop there. Friends, you have to be willing to confront people with their sin. That's what, that is the purpose of the law. The law is to cause us to see our sin. Until you see your sin, until a person sees their sin, they cannot really be saved. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's critical 
to be willing to do that. How else are they ever going to come to repentance and faith? Number five, our fifth principle. Reject false worship. Do you know that everybody, that you know that everybody's got a reason or a justification for their sin? A rationale for the way they live? A philosophy to support it? You gotta have that. Now, listen what the woman says in verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you, and you people, that's the Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, again, this woman's obviously feeling a heavy dose of conviction right now. And it may be that what she's doing, she's seeking to steer the conversation away from herself to the, to a controversial subject like worship. A controversial subject between the Jews and the Samaritans. An unresolved controversial topic. And see, when people begin to feel conviction, this is one of the times when they love to raise questions, controversial issues. Uh, wow. You know, why are there so many denominations? You know, the church is full of hypocrites. Uh, man, the Bible's been translated so many times, we don't even know what it originally said. And on and on and on. They've got all the reasons, all the, the, the controversies that they can raise because now the, the issue becomes the controversy, not me and my sin. And we love to do that. And this woman, she says about worship. Now it may be that's what she's doing. Because remember the, the and, but you will remember that the that the Samaritans were the result of these uh, of uh, interbreeding with pagan nations and the and the distortion of the of the religion of Judaism, and, and one of the results of their intermarrying was the corruption of this faith. They kept the Pentateuch. But they they mixed all kinds of other things together, and they came up with this kind of hybrid worship. And one of the things that they did in the in the in the context of that, they kept the sacrificial system, and they even built an alternate temple on in Mount Gerizim where they could go and worship. And so here here comes the question: Well, which one of these places should we go worship? Should we go offer our sacrifice? Should it be Mount Gerizim or should it be in Jerusalem where you people say that it is? It's a controversy. And it could be that she is, that she is feeling this conviction and she actually is thinking about, well, if I want to get right with God, I need to go worship. So where do I go worship? And she's already acknowledged that Jesus is a prophet because nobody could know all the things that he knew about her life unless that he was. And she says, well, where, where do we, where do I go? But when she does that, notice what she does. She kind of falls back on the one thing she knows. She knows this external kind of religion. This going to a temple, you know, doing these particular things and a way to hopefully get right with God. Where do you go? Well, Jesus 
answer is, is monumental. It gives us the most definitive teaching on worship and all the Gospels. Look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you uh, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And God makes it, or Jesus makes it very clear that It's not the place where you worship that matters. It's the heart. Worship is about loving God, and it's about responding to him according to the truth that he reveals to us in Scripture. It's the heart. It's the Spirit of God working in a person's heart. And, and, and Jesus really here, he's kind of taken to task not only the, the Samaritan system of works, But every works-based system, anything that depends upon what people do and places and things and actions and not the heart. And God has has never been interested in in all that, friends. He's interested in our hearts. He's interested in what's going on in here. And one of the things that Jesus does which was amazing, and Jesus knew he was going to do that. When Jesus hung on the cross, you know what he did? He abolished the Old Testament sacrificial system completely. Uh, the, the veil was rent from top to bottom. And now access is available to all through Jesus Christ. He abolished that system completely. Now there are no more sacrifices. There are no more altars. Now worship can happen anywhere because it's according to truth and it happens in the heart. This is the temple of worship. This is the place of worship of God is right here in you. True worship comes from the love of God and the knowledge of Scripture. And it happens anywhere and everywhere. Do you understand that's a vital point? In sharing the gospel, salvation isn't about praying a special prayer. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about being in a church. It's about the heart. It's about the heart turning away from sin, turning to God, trusting him according to the truth of the gospel which he has revealed and allowing him to to transform us on the inside. And he gives to us his spirit who lives within us. And and that and our heart in re, in response to his truth and his spirit affects worship. It's 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 not an empty religion. And then the final principle is reveal Christ. It's very simple. Verse twenty five, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Now it's clear that this woman holds to some form of you know Jewish messianic belief uh 
And, and, and implied in her responses here is that we can't really know the truth until this one comes. And that makes Jesus' response to her all the more powerful in verse 26 because he says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now there's no he in the original text. He just, he simply says, I am. The one who speaks to you, I am. In other words, I am. I am the one. And, and when they first began talking, she was completely ignorant, totally disinterested, had no concern for her soul or her own well-being spiritually. And after a few minutes, she's repentant, she wants forgiveness, and she's thirsty for the truth about eternal matters. And we know from further in the chapter that her repentance is real and that she was converted And the fact that John goes on to explain that her salvation was the first of many in her community. It says in verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. And he told me all things that I have done. And so when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them and he stayed two days. Can you imagine that? Breaking all the cultural and all the racial barriers. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And know that this is the one who indeed is the savior of the world. Here is a woman who is converted. And immediately what we're hearing testimony of at this point in her life, other people being saved because of her testimony. We know what you said, but now we believe it for ourselves. And friends, you've got a testimony that needs to be heard by other people that are lost. People need to hear that from you. And so, you see, the transforming work of salvation is God's work. You and I can't do that. What is our responsibility? What do we do? Well, all we are do, all we can do is initiate evangelistic conversations. And in that conversation, we seek to transition to spiritual needs, to spiritual matters. And then we are offering to them the mercy of God to meet the needs that we have discovered. And then we confront their sin. So that they understand the greatness of the mercy of God. And upon them understanding that, we urge them to reject all of their false ideologies, all their false beliefs, and simply put their trust in Jesus Christ alone. And then we, we reveal Christ to them and we exhort them to worship God in spirit and truth. Beyond that, there's nothing else we can do. Nothing else. God is the one who discloses himself ultimately in the heart of a person. God is the one who brings out the salvation. But God uses our work as fishermen of men to do his work of salvation. And, and, and listen, admittedly, those kind of conversations, sometimes they're not going to have a resolution you don't always come to an end. We don't always get to see the end of the story like happened here. Sometimes we are the people who are simply 
planting. Sometimes we're the people who are picked up where somebody has already planted and we're just cultivating. We're just hoeing the ground a little bit or we're putting some water on. And we don't get to see the, the fruit erupt from the ground. We don't see the, the fruit come on the vines. We don't get to see that sometimes. But, we, but our responsibility is to continue to do what God asks us to do. Because that's our purpose. That is our purpose. That's why the Lord has left us here. Evangelism. Evangelism. And let me ask you this. How about you? Have you trusted Christ? Do you recognize your need? Do you have a thirst? If you have a thirst, he meet, he will meet it. He will meet it by his mercy and his grace. If you call upon him, if you'll ask him, that's all you have to do. But you have to understand that he came to deal with your sin. And yes, there are wonderful, wonderful benefits. But the main benefit, the primary reason he came to in this world was to die for your sin. And once he removes that barrier, then you have the most wonderful gift in all the universe, God himself. And everything else is just the trimmings. So have you trusted him? Father?